Hello, I'm Tom Ferguson and welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. This show explores the intersection of water, technology and entrepreneurship. Each week, I interview innovators, experts, entrepreneurs and investors in the world of water, helping us understand where this trillion dollar industry is headed. These are the stories of the people building the future of the world's most valuable and fundamental resource. Disclaimer, Tom Ferguson is the managing partner of Bird Island Ventures. All opinions expressed by Tom and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Burton Island Ventures. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I first met Christine Boyle about a week before I specialized in water at Imagine H2O's annual winner's announcement, where she was receiving the award for best early stage water company in 2015. Fast forward almost eight years, she has been an extraordinary guide and mentor. After selling her company Valor Water Analytics to Xylem in 2018, she remained with the company to head up much of their internal digital innovation efforts. She understands more than most the grind of company building in the space, building a market-leading product, picking your way through the utility sales process, hiring and managing brilliant teams. A veteran of both white Combinator and Techstars, she also has an invaluable perspective on the standards for company building outside water. She's just excellent. Please enjoy my conversation with Christine Boyle. Christine, welcome to The Fundamental Molecule. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. So I wanted to start this episode by helping you set the scene. So why don't you just take some time and walk us through your story in water? Because your genesis is pretty unusual. So if you could just walk us through a a high-level version of it, that would be great. So coming out of undergrad, interestingly, I actually worked in the e-commerce tech.com bubble of the late 90s. And was focused on supply chain and logistics at that time, working for a Taiwanese company in uh, Flushing, New York. So I was learning how to distribute goods, understanding kind of core supply chain principles around books, music, and at that time, VCDs. And I liked that, but I something was missing. I enjoyed the distribution of goods, but not so much the goods themselves. <laughs> sure. And did a bit of travel soul searching and really found that water, agriculture, that kind of content was nourishing for my mind, intellectually, for my soul, all the above. So ended up going into academia, getting a PhD at University of North Carolina with a focus on the economics of water, how utilities and people pay for water, things like that. In the midst of that was focused also on data, big data sets coming out of utilities around North Carolina, analyzing them, Back before we even called it data science, we called it data mining, stats, econ, stuff like that. And came out of grad school with an idea, a couple bucks, and a lot of optimism <laughs> in order to do a you know, licensing deal out of North Carolina and, and found my company. That's the beginning stages at the very least. And then went on to found valorwater.com. And what were the problems you were trying to solve with it? What was the intervention and what were you trying to make better in people's lives? So I was focused a lot on the fact that we were encouraging people, society, to use less water, and yet utilities had to pay for the services around providing water, and that there was this conundrum between the two. So a lot around the economics of water, and the intervention that I founded was around analyzing metrology data, 
to locate missing revenue through meter inaccuracy, missing data, things like that on people's bills and people's meter reads. So very specific. When a meter begins to fail was my data science light bulb moment that I restarted solving via data. And that hadn't been done before in the water utility sector, at least. And it turns out that I had moved to California in the midst of a terrible drought in 2012, 2013, and utilities were suffering from a lack of water and a lack of revenue. And so this intervention at that time was extremely poignant for them. They were not selling enough water to pay their bills. They needed revenue. And I was essentially offering them to be able to find one to 2% of their annual revenue in missing money. <laughs> and this that falls straight to the bottom line, right? That's right. So it's a, a one to 2% bump in the net margin. Because it's such an interesting conflict that, you know, we talk about the efficiency of water use as being a fundamental good. But as utilities age, and arguably they actually need to be expanding their budgets, but the less water they sell, the lower their budgets, and less, of course, the feds come in to make up the shortfall. I mean, as a trained water economist, do you see much improvement in that situation, in this sort of like horse that we're, well, not horse that we're wrestling, weird wrestling horse, sea monster, or sorry. But in terms of this issue that we're wrestling with, do you see much of kind of a solution on the horizon? Because it's going to become more and more important. It's a tough one. So there's various ways to approach it. Like in the electricity sector, for example, they have decoupled use from revenue. And so <laughs> a rather distant potential that something like that could happen. And then there's also just charging things like flat fees, which seems counterintuitive to the way rate structures are evolving, but essentially everyone chips in essentially to like pay for a shared upkeep of infrastructure as opposed to every gallon that you use, which is again, a sort of decoupling. And then I would say what utilities are in major favor of that might be even more likely is just like massive federal subsidies for water infrastructure so that the onus of upkeep of local water infrastructure isn't on the backs of the ratepayers. So we don't know which way that's going to go. I think the, where the recent Build Back Better bill and things like that are going towards more of that kind of federal intervention model, but it's not enough. It's interesting, kind of, you know, cumulative 100 billion in the last I mean, it's sort of, it's about 17 months, right, going towards it. And it's all going to be down to appropriations and rate of dissemination and effectiveness of dissemination and all the role of the state revolving funds and, and kind of all the rest of it. It must be kind of the economist in you must be sort of rubbing your hands with glee as to, as to whether, what we're going to observe during this experiment. It's fascinating. I'm paying a lot of attention. So. For sure. So to, so to take us back to the Valor example, so you came out from a an academic background, you know, suddenly you find yourself like running a company and you, we were just talking about this the other day, you went through this fascinating process of becoming a doer to an enabler of other doers. What was your experience as a CEO like? It's fast moving and, you know, you have to be someone who can adapt and chart their own course of change very quickly. Like if you looked at my bookshelf in that time, at the beginning, it was data science and how to build models. And then it was how to raise capital. And then it was being an effective HR manager and hire your first sales VP. And then it was, what's the best business model for recurring revenue? And yet you can see my books because every quarter 
I was essentially like learning a brand new job <laughs> and that was a lot of fun for me. So, but it, it's, it's a long. Yeah, absolutely. And you really need to this comfort with change and also an ability to learn really quite effectively, obviously like a huge part of it. Did you enjoy it? Did you find yourself wanting to, you know, go back to the data science models and just do what you were at the beginning rather than being forced into this new role? This crazy role. Yeah. Because just like any job, anything, there were parts of it that I loved and then there are parts of it that I kind of struggled through. Like, for example, I'm a terrible bookkeeper, you know? And so like, if I'm sitting there writing payments to my internet vendor or setting up accounts or whatever, it was like, that was tough. And I, you know, I didn't enjoy all the roles. And I would sometimes look over the shoulder of my data scientists and say, oh my God, that looks like so much fun. Headphones on, coding, nerding out. I was like, that looks amazing. But I also love sales. I love growth. I loved a lot of the CEO aspects of it. So, you know, going back to crunching models was typically like fleeting. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. A fleeting dream of the grass being greener. And then obviously you took it all the way to, all the way to the exit, which is obviously an extraordinary achievement in anything, particularly in water. Why don't you walk us through that process? Anything that you can say about it? Because obviously a lot of it is under wraps. But I'm specifically interested in the feelings about it because startups are obviously incredibly personal. And I think that when a lot of people are starting the journey of building a company, it's all like, it's going to exit. And it's like, we're going to be great. And then, and then everything will be sold and brilliant and whatever. And I'm just like fascinated to hear what that was like for uh, somebody who's who's been through it. You know, at the very beginning of the company, which was in 2013, I had moved to San Francisco and I will tell you that I wasn't convinced that I was going to build like a venture back company. I was interested in building a business. I was trained in a, a family business. So I understood how to run a business. But my notion of building a business was to make more money than you spend and to build a good product line. And so going all the way to the exit, I would say I wasn't building for the exit is kind of fundamental. I was happy to just build based on growth, profitability, bringing something really fundamentally impactful to the industry that desperately needed it. That was key. When I started getting some, you know, sniffs around the company around exit, I was pretty cavalier around wanting to stay my course and grow and carry out what I had envisioned. And so it actually took some convincing by ultimately, you know, Xylem to say, Hey, no, I think this would be a good idea for you. You know, we'll, we'll make it worth your while. Like this is a, this is a really exciting opportunity where you can be impactful, but on a different scale. And so it was hard to let go. And we can talk a little bit about more about what that looks like inside the, a big, <laughs> but it, you know, it was sort of like taking what I had done, kind of wrapping it up and delivering it to the acquirer, which is Xylem, which is a wonderful mass, you know, global water company. So it was hard. It was hard and exciting and a relief in some ways, such as not having to be responsible for payroll. Like that's like a burden on a founder's shoulders every month. You know, I was really excited about going into Xylem. And if my goal for my technology was to deploy my technology on every meter in the world as fast as I could, what I realized was that selling to a company like Xylem could help me realize that goal. Yeah, no better place for it, for real. So I want to just like stay on this idea of venture-backed company versus this terribly quaint idea, Christine, of spending less than you make 
and getting positive net margins and all of this stuff that is basically anathema to a lot of the world of, of venture building. But you were part of, and you're relatively rare as a water founder for this, but you were in Y Combinator, which by pretty much everyone's estimations is the largest sea fund in the world, probably by an order of magnitude and soon to be a couple of orders of magnitude. 500 startups, a fantastic organization called Tummel, which is now the Urban Innovation Fund. But you really worked at the intersection of broad, big and bad startups, kind of Airbnb and Dropbox and whatever, and venture in water. What do you see as the kind of key differences, or maybe that's sort of where the, the overlap is the least applicable between venture building as broadly understood versus what is required kind of by the water sector? Personally, I think it's changing. So there may be more overlap than there has been like previously. But nevertheless, when you went through it, I believe in 2014, water's got a lot less sleepy than it, it was then. So I just maybe you can take some time and kind of reflect on that experience and what you learned. Back then, there were a few. I mean, water is broad. I was in the utility side of the water business, which is, you know, has its own challenges. Less dynamic than we would like it to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure. I had colleagues that were in White Combinator that were focused on nonprofit, which was out of Code for America and the Detroit Water Project, things like that. And then I had friends that were trying to sell like, different kinds of water bottles and things like that. But I think the thing that Y Combinator saw in me because they do kind of filter by founder was I was very gritty as they would call it as a founder. And they could tell that I was going to be so relentless in my, in achieving my goals. And then like a, just a triple down on growth. Like I was, I wanted to grow. I was showing signals of growth in the company by client count users and revenue that beat expectations around what growth could look like when your growth is utility clients. And I also think that I developed a product and this idea of like a product-driven company in the data side, there weren't very many of us around. There was Opower who had come out and then we had WaterSmart that came out as kind of the O-Water. But other than that, people were waiting to see what else could be sort of productized in our sector. It was a lot of fun and, and I was really into product. It's amazing how early you were, even though it wasn't all that long ago. I mean, we're talking about, you know, eight to nine years. So we're getting on for like, you know, 10 years, but it, it seems so recent that actually the, almost the entire like, digital landscape was essentially sort of a blank slate, apart from a lot of legacy stuff that, well, a lot of it is still around, but it's sort of fascinating to reflect on it. As you think about the growth thing, what do you think the determinants were? Why was it that you were able to like get that growth going. I mean, I've, I've known you for a while. You've got like mass hustle is the, is the mass hustle is probably the technical term, but is there anything that like future entrepreneurs should bear in mind in terms of the lessons you learned about running that growth, especially when you were early? I think that I have a passion for sales and I understood how to close deals from a sales perspective. And so I very quickly was able to get meetings, pilots, contacts, and ultimately contracts with some of the biggest water utilities in North America. And when I say quickly, I'm talking about between six and 18 months from when we founded. In our world, that was pretty good. But when I'm sitting around Y Combinator, we're talking about people who are adding half a million users to their two peas in a pod dating app or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 totally. So I was, I had a lot of pressure on me, but I did tons of things that might not, like I hired a, someone to scrape web data and find every single water utility manager email 
in North America for me. And I paid him a nickel, a lead, as far as lead gen in order to have the context for as many contexts as I could. I sent mailers out. I invested in a very professional looking website. I was very focused on growth and looking like a bigger company than we really were, but then proving it out too. Like when it came to us having clients, you know, I quickly hired extremely competent professionals to actually kind of like run our deployments and not try not to, you know, as some of my mentors said, don't poison the well. Like you can't fake it in the water utility business. You, your product and what you're saying you do and, and how you carry yourself out as far as your technology goes, it, it's got to work. And so we focused a lot on that too. So for those people who are listening to this, do you want to just sort of quickly walk us through the deployment process? So what does it take to go from kind of first contact to somebody using the Valor platform? And how has that changed over time? Like what are your reflections on the nature of the sale to utilities? In my world that we were looking, we were typically dealing with the revenue manager and the operations manager. And we tried to de-risk everything for them. The contract, the deployment, the pilot, the implementation. And what I mean by that is we made it fairly cheap. So we knew what signature authority was and say, hey, you know, you can spend 15, 20, 30K. We, let's give this a shot. Even if it goes horribly wrong, nothing's going to like be, be really bad for you. <laughs> so get through that, get the contracting done, address all of the skeptics in the room at the table that you would have questions from. So we get to signature. Signature, you know, we would try to get to signature within three to four months of initial meeting. And so you design a pilot, make sure that your users, your key contacts, your champions are all part of the pilot design, get that going, and then execute on it. Execute in the pilot as fast as you can. You don't want it to be a long, drawn out process. You want to understand what your hypothesis is, what you're testing for, and then answer the dang question. <laughs> you know, what is the question? Does it work? Do we know how to use it? What's the impact? What's the ROI? All those things like get there <laughs> and then show your results, show your impact, and then try to get that next one, two, three year recurring revenue contract. So that can take a little time, but you just kind of like you finish one phase and then you try to not lose momentum and, and swiftly keep proving value and being awesome professionals <laughs> and solving, solving your clients' problems. What's your feedback? Is this working for you? Not working? How's it going? What's keeping you up at night? You know, like asking lots of questions and, and getting feedback. Exactly. I think there's so much focus, especially product-led companies who like fall in love slightly with the product rather than what they should be falling in love with, which is the delivery of a value proposition via the medium of the product. And that like you, what you've just said is all focused on the experience of your customer, right? Is that like, how did this work for you? Did it solve the thing in your, your life that I told you when I came in was going to solve? If not, why not? And how are we going to adjust this rather than being like, oh, uh, why didn't you just think it was perfect the first time round, which we find frustrating. <laughs> so you obviously had great instincts for this, but you had a lot of training from the Y Combinator and 500 startups and a lot of like really quite serious people. I mean, I would point anyone listening, if you haven't read them to Paul Graham's series of essays, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we use at Burnt Island Ventures that come directly kind of out of that. What did you learn through the top tier, that kind of top tier training that was most useful? What stuck with you? There were kind of two fundamental things that they taught me. And then one that I knew instinctually going in. And the, those two things were focus on growth and then just be relentless in improving your product by talking to your clients and your users. And 
if you're relentless on creating something that is invaluable to the person who's using it, they're going to fall in love with it. And then that's where the magic is. You know, this idea of product market fit that so many companies never find. And if you haven't found it, it's like you've never fallen in love, Tom, because you know it when you feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, absolutely. No one can tell you you're in love. You just know it. You just know. And that's how, don't tell my husband, but that's also how product market fit feels. (laughs) (laughs) And then in those top tier things, the other thing that I realized is that raising capital is very, what I would call clubbish and you need a network and you need to be part of a network. And I need to be part of, I needed a big stamp of approval because I was coming in from North Carolina and I was coming in from the water sector. You know, I wasn't like a Stanford grad creating the next sort of satellite rocket. So I needed a club and YC was my club and it helped a lot, as did Imagine H2O, I should say, to kind of give me the stamp of validation that I needed to raise capital. It's a tricky old beast and continues to be for a lot of people in, in water. I want to sort of switch gears slightly. Walk us through what you see the kind of the rise of data in water. You know, we're kind of like we're we're not suffering from a surfeit of data in water, and certainly we haven't historically. So walk us through the rise as as you see it. And then what currently excites you most on the digital side of things? Because there's a lot of experiments being run. Are a lot of experiments. And so there's a lot of data, there's a a ton of data coming in. And if you talk to well, I should say that because we say data in water is like, there's more now than there ever has been. If you talk to someone at Google, they kind of look at you and yeah. think you're weird. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> we get that in about 11 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So there's some different scales here, but in water, we do have a lot of data. It's coming in through weather data, satellite data, billing data, a lot of new device data, different sensors and metrology, IoT. I think that. There are two things that are really exciting. One is that a lot of our water and a lot of our network are invisible. We can't see them because it's underground. And so a lot of the work that I'm excited about is about things that are really hard to see and measure, such as flood water that is underground, that is mixing with bad sewage things, for example, that's hard to manage. And we have at Xylem, we have some solutions around that. So that that's invisible. Data is going to help us measure things and manage them that can shed light on managing major events such as floods or pressure drops or boil water notices and things like that that we just can't see. And so that's one thing. And then the other thing that's exciting is just the notion of real time. Water has often been managed in either weekly, quarterly, sometimes 10-year cycles And when we talk about like the physical water, it actually hasn't really been managed in the time scale that physical water operates. It's managed often way after the fact in models that are looking at things like way long after the activity has actually occurred. So if we can optimize in real time, if we can measure in real time, if we have like level and flow and things like that that are being measured, the world of possibilities becomes really, really, really exciting including mixing it with weather data, seawater, sea level data and satellite data and all those kinds of things. So the real-time notion is pretty new to water. So one of the things that we're obviously really interested in is the intersection of of two things. So firstly, multivariate real-time sensing, as you said, flow level, BOD, COD, 
metals content, whatever it might be. Tell us what's in your water in real time. There is some interesting emerging stuff there. We obviously invested in 2S Water, which is fascinating on the, the metal side of things. But what really excites me is the intersection with what's happening Mars outside of the water sector, two things in particular, aerial observation, what you're able to observe from space, because there's all sorts of really interesting signatures that you can track, especially as you get to really, really high granularity observation. And the other one is just the ubiquity of connectivity. We're getting all excited about 5G. Poor old 5G is going to get smashed by Starlink and their ilk. But there's all sorts of fascinating things I think that can happen. That's really helpful. Do you see attention? between the fact that water is a physical molecule and that we need to be able to provide water at the right quantity, quality, price, place, and time with this sort of, and it's come off a bit. There was kind of peak digital optimism, if you will. I think kind of around 2018, I think, 2017 to 2018, the digital water was going to be the thing that are hard. Do you see a tension between the fact that this is a physical molecule and actually the potential for, for just data and software-based systems in terms of building companies in the space? There is a tension. And I think that, I think our devices need to be better. And so we're seeing things that don't go through as much wear and tear and aren't as difficult for our operators and maintenance crews to deal with. We've seen a lot of abandoned devices, yes. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, and either technology that didn't really work or the battery runs out or some kind of grit <laughs> or rag or whatever kind of floats away. And then our users don't feel good about that and they don't want to buy it anymore and, and they don't want to invest in it. So I think our devices need to be better in order for us to measure things, like you said, either aerial or we have like non-contact sensors now that are more interesting. So I think the technology needs to be better for us to build back the sort of trust and the credibility in IoT and water. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that that is, because there's a lot of shade thrown at utilities in particular, like you guys don't adopt anything. And I just sort of think if it was the right technology, it would have been a adopted so far. I mean, it's, it's very odd for somebody who invests in and spends his whole time supporting founders to say, look, maybe like historically it's been kind of the people building this that haven't quite got it to the level that it needs to be in order to actually solve the problem that's on the table. Do you think that's fair or do you think I'm being too harsh on historical founders within water of not actually building the product that can deliver the value proposition that you've sold over the table? I'm tending to agree with you. I think that some newfangled device that doesn't work in the environment and in sort of the management regime. And what I mean by management regime is like, it needs to have a certain battery life. It needs to have a certain about ability to maintain it. It's just not right for the sector. It's not the right product market fit. It needs to stand up to the use cases and the situations that, you know, whether it's a flood, a price point, the ability of a crew to install and maintain it, perhaps the technologist didn't quite get there. And they're getting closer now. That's absolutely right. Well, I'm glad you agree with me <laughs> <laughs> because I spent a lot of time kind of feels odd to be throwing the kind of the founders under the bus, but everybody spends all of their time wailing about like utilities, not deploying things fast enough. And I'm like, this doesn't, these are really, 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 really smart people. And if the product's not right, they're not going to put it in. Yes. Yeah. Or it's, well, you know. it's hard. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's hard to get access. I think on the utility side, I would say, keep letting us try. <laughs> and Give us access to your maintenance crews and your operators and your engineers so that we can get the input we need to keep making things 
for you. Absolutely. Give us the space to run these experiments for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question. Especially when there is no downside, as you said, right? There's no downside to implementing Vela. The worst thing is like, you don't find any extra money. <laughs> okay. It's not as if you've messed with someone's water quality. Yeah. There's way too much objection on the areas where there, where there literally is no downside. I wanted to just ask, because you've gone from being your own boss to having a boss now, or us again, but also organizationally, it's so different. I mean, Xylem really is the pick of the bunch. I mean, if anybody to get bought by, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm biased, from, you know, given that they're, they're a seriously important partner of ours. But what have you learned going into the corporate thing from the startup side of things? I mean, were you reminded of your earliest day in kind of e-commerce? That sounded a little bit more startup-y, but what have you learned from the, the sort of changing gears? I think that the calculus I went through was I had a lot of impact in a very small sphere. And then I kind of went where I had diminished impact, but a very large sphere. And so what I've just tried to do as I navigate my new ecosystem here is just to continue to try to have, have impact, enjoy. I have like amazing, amazing colleagues and try to network internally. The same hustle that I used to use <laughs> to sort of external stakeholders. A lot of that is just within Xylem now and just having a focus on being impactful. And so it's different. Like I said, there are so many more stakeholders and I don't get to decide things unilaterally, which kind of sucks, but that's part of my new world. I have to convince some stakeholders to agree with me to get things done. Well, that we could all kind of rule by edict, regardless of role. God, it would be a lot simpler. It's interesting. You said the word impact. Do you see any tension between a desire to have impact and a desire to create something commercially viable? For me, like I've worked in academia, I've worked in nonprofit and, you know, I believe in capitalism pretty diehard. And so I believe because we live in a, a capitalist society, I think that for me, having impact is making something attractive enough that someone wants to buy it. <laughs> So if you make something great, people will pay for it. And that's true in water too. And although you can go the nonprofit route and I'm, you know, enjoy being partners with those that do that. For me, just the business model that makes sense is dispersion through the economy, through selling things. Yeah, no question. We get asked this all the time at BIV, whether or not we're an impact investor. And my answer is always, well, yeah, <laughs> because the founders we back are really smart and their solutions are awesome. If they're right, if it's right, and this works, a really big problem in water is going to get solved. But you can't put the cart before the horse, right? You've got to have the business element there first because financial sustainability means sustainability of impact. If you don't have financial sustainability, yeah, okay, maybe you can kind of like grant funded up to a kind of a point. But the likelihood is that, you know, you're just going to run out of kind of gas or patience or interest or whatever it is. And you've just got to find something that is commercially sustainable first and foremost. Yeah, super interesting. And... As you talk about impact, do you have any reflections on the macro picture in water? This has been a, like a really tricky, I mean, it's, it's not even, it has been, it still is a really tricky summer. I mean, you've got the article today came out, the drought in the Southwest is now the worst we've seen in 1200 years. You've got most of Pakistan underwater. You've had the, a bunch of European rivers dry up, also in China. How are you, uh, it's getting pretty crunchy out there. Like, how are you thinking about the dispersal of your own effort and how are you thinking about the dispersal of people who are interested in in water kind of more generally just broad reflections i mean the macro water sector is extremely troubling let's just say as we read the news you know i believe 
pretty deeply in, in human ingenuity. And the human ingenuity that I see winning here is like you and I have talked about is I would say like kind of localized and regionalized water resilience. I think of water reuse. I think of more sophisticated flooding controls and the ability for us not only to engineer, but, you know, bringing everything into the table. We include kind of ecosystem-based, watershed-based solutions and thinking of the most dire situation and then using human ingenuity to almost like, you know, design for it. It's going to be expensive. <laughs> There's no doubt about that, but it's what we need to invest. I also care a lot and think a lot about human health. And again, how do we get ourselves out of contamination, whether it's by E. coli or PFAS and things like that. But you've seen, and we've seen in Bird Island Ventures founders, amazing human ingenuity. Like you know, if we take all the, the solutions on the table, we can solve a lot of problems, but these need to be pretty massively widely deployed at the community level, at the regional level, at the national level. Like it's a pretty major feat to make a difference here. It's a really, really useful prism human health, because a huge amount of attention is paid to health. I don't know whether you saw the statistics that came out, but the sort of the outcomes, regardless of the outcomes versus per capita spend, just the per capita spend on healthcare is wild. And I'm like, it's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a reason in that you need your water, your food, your shelter. But if your water and your food are full of garbage, actually nothing else works. And it's one of these things that I feel as if we're right at the bottom of the mountain of getting people to realize this link between water and actually if you want to have interventions in human health it's a really good idea if you want people to be healthy or to be learning to get the lead out of their bloodstream because what you think is a behavioral issue is actually a chemical imbalance from what they are imbibing i think it's such a useful frame do you think we're getting better at it i would say this in the early 70s we passed the drinking water act clean water act and the Clean Air Act. Those were all justified by amazing natural resources economists figuring out the value of public health. And so we actually went through kind of a high period of thinking about the economics of human health to justify our investment in clean water and clean air in the 70s. Then we hit the 80s and the 90s, and we went more into sort of market-driven practices around you know, pollution control. But we're coming to it now where human health, whether it's hand washing, showers, drinking, agriculture, chemicals in water, like we need to begin sort of doing the economics analysis again to understand how we're going to pay for this stuff. And there's some, I would say, I don't know if you've seen, but we're thinking about adding PFAS as a kind of to the Superfund bill again. And the question is, who is going to pay for this stuff and how much is it going to cost? So. You know, I think the economists are going to be very popular again as we think about how we address these types of issues. Yeah, no question. And that's not even to mention flooding and drought and, and such. It's expensive. It really is. And the, the problem that we had when I was at ERM, and this was kind of relatively early, and it was also after the great financial crisis, so nobody really kind of cared about any of this stuff. But the, I remember we hired a super nice economist who came in to, you know, do kind of ecosystem uh, services valuation. And the poor bloke was just being sort of very clear about it, but his answer kept on coming back as total. <laughs> everything, like the number is really, 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 really big because without these ecosystem services, everything goes sideways really quite fast. 
you know, and it's still kind of the same thing. You know, if we want to do the onboarding of semiconductors and whatever it is, we need to find out whether we've not got enough like water for it. And even like before that, like, you know, I live in sort of Western Brooklyn. I look at the Gowanus Canal, which is not nice and is a, is a, a very interesting urban super fun site. I'm like what happens when the seas rise? This is like not going to be good news for anybody that's living in some of the most expensive kind of real estate in the world. Not that that's necessarily relevant. It's just the value at stake here is very, very large. And it's going to be an interesting journey to get people used to it. And as you've said, like you know, the data piece of it is absolutely critical. Can I ask you about China? You're one of the only people I know in the, in the water sector who's fluent in Mandarin. Um, and obviously I have a love and deep experience with the country. What are your reflections on China and water in China and, and China as a market? You know, I spent many years in China. I was a Fulbright scholar in China studying water in Northern China. So I have spent a lot of time there. I think that the industrial boom in China has been very, very difficult on their water resources. And we know that, and there's a lot of remediation activities going on there. I think, again, China in particular is a very technocratic, engineering-centric society. So a lot of the leaders and those at the highest levels are actually water and civil engineers. So they're going to try to engineer themselves out of the crisis that's brought about by massive population surge, urbanization, and industrialization. So they have a lot of challenges. But again, if I think of how China has dug themselves out of various challenges, I'm thinking, keep an eye on how they're solving things. What are they doing? Whether it's ecosystem or policy or technology, I'm going to be watching Chinese leadership as well as sort of local development to see how they're engineering themselves out of problems. We can look at the Three Gorges Dam and the South to North Water Diversion and say, okay, that's probably not going to work for us. <laughs> but on the other hand, they're taking some major, major gambles because the magnitude of their problems are that big. And I think that, you know, there's going to be lessons learned both ways. And, you know, I'm certainly paying attention to some of the gambles, like, for example, some of their agricultural practices around GMO cotton and some of their GMO crops is pretty interesting to how they can grow drought resistant rice and corn and cotton and things like that. So, you know, I think I'll just say I'm, I'm paying attention and have and most of the time, a lot of respect for technologies that I'm seeing coming out of that country. Fantastic. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Christine, this has been fantastic. This is going to be our final question. Okay. And it's going to be the question that emerges into our traditional final question, which is what is one lesson from your entrepreneurial experience that you would pass on to any emerging water founder? I think that there's a certain ninja-like adeptness any founder must have, especially in the water sector and beyond. And, you know, you need to be able to move very fluidly between vision and you need to have a vision and you need to be able to articulate your vision and back and forth between vision and execution very swiftly. If your vision is to deploy X, Y, and Z in every utility in the world, that's a massive vision. Can you move between that and execution deftly? in order to gain ground constantly. And I think that that's really hard, but if you think about it in that way, and, and you can kind of organize your day, your hour, your day, your week, your month, your quarter, your year, you're gonna gain ground swiftly and you need to in order to be successful in building a successful water technology company, water engineering company. So 
ninja-like skills, Tom. We're going to call that a 30,000-foot, one-inch rule. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're going to be up in the clouds and then down with the worms. You do. Fantastic. Brilliant. Christine, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, and we'll speak to you soon, no doubt. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom.